Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to the Arch Conservatives podcast, the first edition of uh, Radio Free Athens in a long time. Um, we have been really busy and have sort of put the podcast on the back burner, but as I promise, every time we do that, we are going to try to make it more frequent, at least until the semester's end. Um, a little update on what's been going on. Um, we had a new magazine come out um, a couple of weeks ago. It was the spring edition uh, of the Arch Conservative that you can <clears throat> pick up at the Tate Center and I think in a couple of other reading boxes around campus. Just keep your eyes open for those. Um, also, this Next week, today is April 5th, next week, uh, next Wednesday the 10th, we are having an event over at the uh, the Hilton Garden Inn, the ballroom there. We are doing a panel discussion alongside the Georgia Public Policy Foundation, where we will be talking about school choice policy um, with, uh, with a couple of, with a representative from GPPF, uh, Kyle Wingfield, their CEO, as, as well as a uh, Georgia professor. Uh, of economics, Jeffrey Dorfman, um, <clears throat> and I'll be there as well, as well as most of the editors. So that'll be April 10th at 5 o'clock if you're in the Athens area, or if you are close enough to the Athens area, it'd be great uh, to see you there. Um, with me today to talk about whatever we're going to talk about is uh, Reed Ferguson. How are you doing, Reed? I'm good. How are you? I've been worse. Um, I think I'm ready to get this weekend going. Um there's been a lot that's happened at UGA since uh, since the last podcast that we did. Uh, one of those things was a pretty sizable protest that I saw when I was downtown. I had not heard about it beforehand, which was disappointing. But um, the uh, heartbeat bill, which has since passed uh, the Georgia House of Representatives, um, was met with some disdain from a lot of the more vocal students at UGA. Um, Reed, were you able to catch that protest? I did not catch it, but I had heard about it a little bit earlier in the day. I was asked by somebody at Grady News Source to um, speak about the bill, um, just from the pro-life perspective. Um, so I had a short 10-minute conversation with him, but before that day, I hadn't, I hadn't heard of this group, I think, what what, are the, what was the group called? I have no idea. Something I didn't like know. March for Choice or something like that. Oh, um, that's gross. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say to him? Um, he basically asked, <clears throat> um, "What is the pro life perspective?" Or yeah, what is the pro life perspective? Um, and I answered by saying that it's a question of whether or not it's a life, and if it is a life, then the government has a role to protect it. Probably said a lot said it a lot more eloquently when I had, <laughs> when I explained it out to him. And then he asked, um, let's see, he asked about how if this, how they say it's about a woman's right to choose and how we square that with the pro-life <clears throat> perspective. Um, also asked specifically about this bill um, and how it cuts off at when a heartbeat is detectable, which is sometimes around six weeks, mm -hmm. and how that most women don't know they're pregnant after six weeks. Um, yeah. What do you think of campus protests in general? I mean, because I, I was, like I said, I was downtown and I was walking around with a friend and I kind of made the comment that, like, you know, that 
this is sort of, you know, this is going to be public, but it's only going to be public because the red and black is covering it. Mm -hmm. Like, it was a protest that was on campus at about 6 p.m. is when I saw it. They were on North Campus. There weren't that many people out in the quad, you know, out on Mm -hmm. North Campus to see it. And How many people would you say? That were just bystanders? They were marching. Oh, God, I mean... You know, compared to most of the demonstrations, it was pretty big. I didn't get a head count. Um, I mean, it was at least a few dozen, I think. Um, so, yeah, so the protest was, was was big for sure. But you're talking about you're marching around, you're demonstrating in front of a bunch of people who are, first of all, not very many. You know, there were probably five or six other people that I could see in that area. And the chances of those people already totally agreeing with you are, frankly, pretty high. Um, And, you know, I don't want to diminish, you know, any sort of demonstration as being pointless. Um, But I don't know. I just I feel like this with a lot of other things is sort of uh, modulation. Like it's not there's not really much going on. It's a very simple risk, mm-hmm. you know, you know what I mean? And, and the demonstration, um, I don't know. I just wanted, I, I wanted to know if I was, if I was alone in that, like, I don't want to say that it's know. pointless, but I just feel like it's more self-serving. Do you think than, you would feel different if it were differently, if it were the other side marching? If it was like a pro-life, pro-life movement, yeah. I would feel a little bit differently about that. Because since, they're facing opposition. Because they're facing more opposition. And I do, and I, I very nearly despise the notion that conservatives are ever victims in the United States, anywhere in the Mm -hmm. United States, except for maybe Portland. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's, I think it's true that most interactions that you have on campus are probably going to be with somebody who is uh, of the liberal persuasion. and that's why I think the risk is minimized. And, I, and, and, a, and a protest is not validated by the risk at all. Mm-hmm. But I think it is validated by uh, how it's covered, um, the amount of coverage that it gets, mm-hmm. um, and locality, you know, where it is. I think if a protest was taking place, for example, uh, outside of the Georgia House of Representatives, um, which has a Republican majority mm-hmm. at, the, at least, um, then it would make a little bit more sense than just doing it. It's, I mean, it's sort of like doing it yeah. in your living room. I also believe, I think the, I think the bill had already passed at the, at that point. I think it was, I'm not sure about it, that. It may have been it, the I day think it was a couple of days. Day yeah, maybe so. I think. So if it, if it was, if it, if it hadn't already, passed, it was going to pass. Yeah. I, it may have, it may have been earlier that day though. I'm not sure. But if it, if it had already passed, that is especially pointless because the only person you need to persuade is governor Kemp. Right. And marching around in Athens is probably not mm-hmm. going to sway that. Right. It might've helped if you were trying to sway a representative from Athens, um, put political pressure there but marching around on UGA's campus probably isn't going to influence that. Yeah, probably not. And I think the bill itself, you know, there's a lot of cynicism around it. You know, I think that, I don't think that it's quite worthy of declaring a total absolute victory um, 
for pro-lifers, and I don't think that it should be viewed as the end of the world. <laughs> I think it should be viewed as a reflection of a re- Republican state. Yeah. Um, and so my understanding of it is that it would, you know, probably be challenged at some point, perhaps yes. by, you know, some ad- advocacy group, mm-hmm. uh, and then brought to the judicial realm. Um, and the idea being that the judiciary would make a ruling at some point, you yeah. know, declaring it constitutional or not. Um, and I think that's part of the idea, I, at least, right, would be Probably. getting it into the I judicial think that's, system. I think that's the goal of a lot of these bills and mm-hmm. in, in going around in other states, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. I mean, I guess the reason it's not totally, completely everything a pro-life, acti- a pro-life activist would ask for I guess the reason for that is that they probably couldn't pass a bill that was outright banning abortions. Um, the loopholes are, are are much tighter. Yeah, I think. Yeah, at, no, it's at, definitely at, a at step in the right direction. It's yeah. just, I mean, it's it's logically inconsistent. But I don't know that you could pass a logically consistent pro-life bill. Well, it depends on what your. I mean, if it was a logically absolute bill. Yes, it would be. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so that was the, I guess that was the biggest thing in Georgia politics, uh, lately. Um, we'll have to see how that goes and see if, you know, maybe they'll make a decision that will involve the state of Georgia. That would be pretty exciting. Um, we, uh, we also, I think this is a few weeks old now and Georgia's had this weird habit of just simply ignoring people until they kind of go away. We saw that with, uh, I've been wanting to talk to cover this a little bit more with the arch conservative, but, uh, uh, the, the TA, uh, that, uh, Oliver Bunner covered a couple of, a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. the guy who said a bunch of, uh, racist things on his Twitter feed and the university was notoriously indecisive about how to deal with it and you know this is something that personally i don't care very much about um i the only thing that i had to say about that was that it was not consistent with the standard they had set for adam sasser um who's they took his scholarship away and his scholarship was obviously the reason he was at the university of georgia um but there was a another instance where there was a fraternity brother from it was TKE I think yes yes I think so. um, which is an off-campus fraternity um, and I won't go into details about why they're off campus but there uh, there was a video of him getting caught saying some pretty heinous things with a few of his friends that were that were racially charged uh, he was very obviously joking around but you know it was not a it was very unpleasant and mm-hmm. I definitely can see how it could have been unacceptably unpleasant for um, for somebody who was especially African American um, and it's just funny to see how how action is taken I think because he was very promptly kicked out of the fraternity and if you rolled through any comment section of uh, that story on Facebook when the university would tweet out something about that when the red and black would publish an article about that there were a lot of people mostly students if you were to check the profiles who were saying it's like good job now we want him kicked out of the university um, 
Oh yeah, overheard and, at UGA. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, they they do that a lot, and I think they were originally the ones who broke the Sasser mm-hmm. story. I say broke as if they are, <laughs> you know, seriously uh, reporting. But you know, either way, uh, there are a lot of people who don't want any kind of. They want a totally zero tolerance policy on that, and I mean, it's it's difficult to rationalize some of these rulings with the way that the university is. They're a public entity, but they also have, they also toe the line between what they're able to do with the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had the free speech bill passed, I think almost, that's like a year and a half ago, I think by now. Um, So I I think that it's, it's the, the the judicial system is totally backwards, but the the way it is set up constitutionally, I think, is strange too. Um, but we we still have uh, some free speech zones, and I guess I wonder if, if he would have gotten in less trouble if he was standing outside mm-hmm. the Tate Center. Do classrooms count as free speech zones? Classrooms don't. Well, they don't actually, um, and I don't. I don't know what that would mean uh, for just conversation. I mean, I think a teacher could yeah. kick you out for any reason, um, but I, you certainly can't hold a protest uh, inside a classroom. Yeah, I think the only the only really good purpose, at least for the conservative um, movement at UGA and across the country, because it became a national story um, that had to do with the TA, um, is that it gives you a standard to hold people on all sides of the aisle mm-hmm. to. Um, so I don't know where the story with the fraternity kid is going. I don't know what the latest. I mean, is I on think that, it's. I think it's over. It is. I think that nobody cares about it anymore. Which and I mean, I, I mean, we're did talking. He get, did he get kicked out? He got kicked out of TKE. Mm-hmm. The fraternity kicked him out, but they can kick you out for anything. Yeah. They can kick you out for you know doing drugs or sleeping with somebody's girlfriend. I mean, they they have you know autonomy mm-hmm. from that, just like they can accept anybody, but. UGA, I think it's a little bit different, um, but yeah, it is. It is weird to see how they handle those things because you, it, you. I think there's something to be said for the fact that they, you never know what they're going to do. Yeah. Because there is no standard for it. There's no law. I think that they really have to follow. I think. Yeah, I suppose that's through the Equal Opportunity Office. Um, I'm on this university judiciary, but we don't handle, um, we don't handle stuff like that. What do you handle? Um, academic honesty and yeah, stuff like so that. Yeah, so we basically exist to educate the student body on the code of conduct and to hold formal hearings for students charged with breaking the code of conduct mm-hmm. so that they have due process. It's been um, required since uh, Dixon v. Alabama, which is a federal court case in like 1967, sometime, sometime around that around the late 60s, um, that said students uh, students have to have due process before being expelled, or it might include suspended, but it definitely includes expelled from uh, public institutions. So Georgia w- was actually the first, to, the first university to have a student-run organization like ours, and it's actually a model for a lot of organizations around the country. I don't want to get you to say anything, you know, bad about our particular judiciary, but do you think that that's okay? Do you think that that it should be a student? Well, before it before it was a panel at all, it was one person was all it took. An employee? Yeah, like the president or vice president, all it took was one person to say you're out. So it does give students a fair 
a fair process. I think I think that our, our process is a, is a very fair process. Now yeah. I think it might. I I think there might be a conversation to be had about extending our process actually to like the academic dishonesty mm-hmm. um, stuff because I don't see any reason why we shouldn't handle that as well when we're handing handling underage drinking cases and assault cases and things like that. I don't, I don't see why we shouldn't handle that. I do understand why if we If it's dis- assault or underage drinking, then what, what does that really have to do with the university? I'm not saying it does, it shouldn't have anything to do with the university, but what like beyond going to court if for you, a battery or whatever you did, what, do you, what is that role? Are you like, what's the process like or why, why should the university ha- have any say in that? Not role? necessarily the method, but what, what happens? Like, what do you decide? Um, sanctions, whether or not they're suspended or not. It's really about, um, should, if someone, if someone, um, you know, assaults their roommate or something, Mm -hmm. should that person be a part of the university community? Because you don't have a, you don't have a right to be a part of the university community if you are, um, if you are a threat to it. Okay. Or if you don't abide by its standards. Yeah. Okay. That makes, that makes a little bit of sense. Um, yeah, I had to go through that. I'm, I'm, I don't know if I've told you this, but yeah, I had yeah, to go through this. Me. I had to go through that same process when I was accused of plagiarism in freshman year. Um, I didn't plagiarize anything, uh, but I had to prove basically not to that council, not to that mm-hmm. panel. Yeah, you I had, to prove, it, I had to prove it to my to my TA, uh, which I did in about eight minutes. <laughs> but uh, it caused a great deal of stress because uh, you know, unlike in in real life, they don't actually tell you what they think you did until you show up, um, which is a, an interesting point all of its own. I had actually not begun writing or doing any sort of, uh, political activism in any way before at, at that point I was just, I was taking freshman math and I was ready to go get a job. Um, yes, I've heard a lot of stories of people who go through the academic dishonesty um, process and have had bad experiences, including a professor who told me he was sitting on, he was like the faculty advisor. I haven't observed one, so I don't know what they're like, but he was like a faculty panel member or, um, or something on one of them. And he came out livid. He was very angry with the process. So I think there definitely should be a conversation about, um, putting academic dishonesty situations under the wing of the university judiciary. Did he have what? Did he have anything specific to say about it? Um, I probably shouldn't. That's I fair. Shouldn't I can tell you what happened in mine. Um, Go for it. Because I don't know if these people even work at the university anymore. It was so delicate. That was that was the main takeaway I had from it. It was like they they knew that they were dealing with something so deathly serious as like you know, hey, I can fail this class, which is something I yeah. don't really want to do as an eighteen year old. But they were so just reluctant to talk about it in the terms that, uh, in the reality of, you know, what was going on. And I, you know, eventually said something like, you know, I feel like I'm the only person here that's taking this seriously Mm -hmm. at all. Um, and I think that's really bad. You know, you're already dealing with a system that's backwards. Um, like I said, I had to prove that I didn't cheat, which is, which was strange on its own. And then, you know, you don't even, I show up and you don't even want to tell me that you think I cheated. You just don't want to make me uncomfortable, which too late. You made me uncomfortable three days ago when you told me I had to come to this damn thing. Um, 
but I think that's something that, uh, I don't really know too many details about this, but they're very attached to it as well. I know when Betsy DeVos, you know, said she, she got a lot of pushback from Joe Biden, you know, when she said something about, uh, wanting more fair, uh, you know, hearings for people who had been accused of crimes. And she was talking not about plagiarizing. She was talking about like rape. Yeah. Um, because there have been cases. There was that very highly publicized case from Rolling, you know, Rolling Stone reported on it, where it was a mass rape scandal that turned out to be totally fabricated. Oh yeah, what school was uh, that? Was it Virginia? That sounds familiar. I think so. Or was it Duke? It was Duke. Yeah, it was the Duke lacrosse team, yes, right? Yes, I think so. Anyway, things like that, you know, they happen, and um, you know, you've got a lot of statistics like that are a little dodgy about, you know, one in four females is going to get sexually assaulted in college, when in reality it's their measurements that say it's more like one in 40. That's still pretty high, but, you know, it's not as bad. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think the FBI statistic is even smaller than that. I mean, it's probably underreported because rape is notoriously underreported, but not it is, but it not is, that underreported. It's not, not that one a, in four it underreported. It is notoriously underreported and then but there are also things, you know, that could be counted as sexual assault that maybe shouldn't be, I guess. Um, oh yeah, the one in four, I think uh, one in four or one in three statistic is comes from a survey that doesn't actually define I think it uses the word um, I think it says sexual assault, and it doesn't actually define sexual assault. Mm-hmm. So that's where that number comes from. Yeah, um, and you know, obviously, we we wouldn't want to minimize any Mm-mm. trauma that people have gone through. But I think it um, does minimize it to but, say that. Which was my point. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, when you, yes. you you know, it makes it, it on one on the one hand, what I was talking about earlier is it makes you know. It makes innocent people look guilty, mm-hmm. and number two, it drowns out people who have actually, been who have actually been victim, victimized. Yes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, what other bases should we cover? There's been, I guess, another 25 Democratic candidates who have entered the <laughs> fray. Stacey Abrams continues to make an absolute uh, ass out of Still herself. Still not conceding. She uh, sore loser. That was a funny. Uh, I think it was Dan McLaughlin pulled up a tweet of hers uh, from. I think October of 2016, when she said the prospect of a candidate for president not respecting the results of a democratically uh, of a democratic election is terrifying. And then I think two days ago she gave a speech where she basically said, "I won the election and didn't lose by 54,000 mm-hmm. votes." Um, so I just well, see, wait. it's not democratic democratic if a Democrat loses. That's a good point. I I, I want to do another longer podcast about the whole concept of democracy because I, um, I, I, I read some, I was I've been reading uh, up from liberalism and he and William Buckley who wrote it goes into a lot of uh, things about democracy I've always said you know like you know the Washington Post uh, has democracy dies in darkness as a uh, motto grady has something like over the doors it was something like building democracy's future or something like that it basically one of the things he said was today's pundit you know a democracy leaves their mouth every time they take a breath and when they close their mouths one of them gets cut in half you know it's so there's you know lots of 
any any time there's a government a regime change somewhere in the world somebody's always going to say well that was a democratically elected you know definitions of democracy certainly vary um and uh you know i think that i'd say that in a, in a very short way I, I could explain it uh my own position which would be that democracy in and of itself is not good i agree it's not bad either mm-hmm. but what we call democracy in the United States so casually. First of all, we're not. Yeah, no, our founders did not want to be a democracy. First of all, systematically we're not, but what we when we say democracy, what we actually mean is the society that that this particular democracy mm-hmm. has brought about. Yes. And there are a heck of a lot more factors that go into that mm-hmm. than just the fact that it was 51% of people doing this or that. Mm-hmm. Um I think that's probably a topic for uh, another day. But I do love it's it's so interesting the way that journalists especially really love that word, Mm -hmm. and they really like this is a threat to democracy. This is a you know the the chant. This is what democracy looks like, and I'm sitting there thinking that's not democracy. That's that's freedom of speech, which is outlined in the, in the Constitution, which makes us a constitutional representative republic, but that's not democracy. You can have a democracy the, without free speech. Yeah, they were chanting that at the at the House bill protest. That's what, mm-hmm. I, I didn't see them, because they were pretty far away from me, but I was walking down College Avenue over towards the Arch, and I heard they were doing, this is what democracy looks mm-hmm. like. Well, you know what's also democracy? If a if a if a, the Georgia House, if the majority, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the Georgia House is also a democracy. Yeah, it's like if it's, the majority of the people in the United States want no abortions ever, that's democracy. But you marching down UGA's campus is not democracy. I don't know what you think democracy means, but that's not it. They, I, I mean, that's what activism looks yeah. like. It's what chanting and walking, yeah, and but, but it's not democracy. Holding a banner looks like. I mean, it's it's a lot of things that you could have said. Mm-hmm. And you, Chose democracy because it's, I guess it's a buzzword, um, but yeah, that's democracy is invalid once it goes against you know that mm. crowd, uh, and now I guess they're the electoral college. We're talking about abolishing that, um, which that got a little that got a very constrained applause in one of my political science classes last week. Somebody said something about the electoral college being on the, uh, being on the platform of debate. And there was, there were a couple of people who were just like, you know, kind of given a, I didn't know like that a was still a discussion class. that was going on. It is. It's going to be, I think it's going to be even more of a discussion in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it was definitely a discussion around the time of the 2016 election. I remember seeing a lot of Facebook debate about that, yeah, that's but it. it kind of disappeared. Yeah, everything disappears until election time, mm-hmm. everything except the economy. Um, yeah, the economy is another thing that I think it would be worth talking about another time, just mainly because of Donald Trump totally breaking the, uh, the system of analysis, meaning basically you can, you can judge approval rating almost in correlation with the economy. Um, you know, Bill Clinton 
did that in 1992. Mm -hmm. The economy wasn't especially bad when he was running, but he certainly was not going to challenge George Bush on foreign policy Mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, But the economy is going, you know, gangbusters right now, and it has been for a few years now, but Trump still has a very low approval rating, which I think is awesome, personally, because I think that some people still... Now, I think I... The definitions of this word are probably different between me and somebody who really disapproves of Donald Trump, like, more than me. Mm-hmm. But it shows me that character does still matter to a lot of people. Um, it would be great if I thought that a lot of that disapproval was coming from, say, evangelical Christians, yeah. but I don't think it is. I yeah. think it's coming a lot from the left, a lot from, and a lot from, you know, the the Reagan right. Um, yeah, I think a lot of the the... Um, Trump bashing, at least on the left, is not rooted in real principle. I mean, it surely is for some people, but it's largely based in virtue signaling. Um, yeah, because if you say Trump sucks, you've got a golden ticket. Yeah. Um, you've automatically made three friends. Yeah. <laughs> the entire class is your friend. Yeah, the whole, the whole class, the whole... Tate Center protest. I haven't heard from Students for Justice in Palestine. Oh, in yeah. Where are They're they my going? favorite activist group. Uh, and I guess it's because the, the the Jewish students, the Israel Fest people, haven't done anything yet. But I, I, it's, pretty, it's getting pretty close to Israel Fest season. Um, so I'll, I always look forward to that because it's so heinous. I met this girl, bless her heart, she was uh, with, the, with those people at... Uh, at the at one of the booths and I was over there taking pictures. I think this was when I was still a contributor of the Arch Conservative and I came to find out that she was, you know, with the she had been a, a veteran in the IDF um, and was just so, you know, she was so she was confused because the the festival was not advocating an Israeli seizure of like the like Golan Heights or like mm-hmm. the Gaza Strip. It was like they had falafel and a camel. And these people are over here talking about, you know, this country not having the right to exist mm-hmm. and a lot of these people's parents live there, you know. Um but we're about at the thirty minute mark. We have pretty much gotten our feet wet again with the podcast, which I hope to actually do consistently. Um, do you have any plans for the weekend, Reed? Two tests on Monday, so I will be So you do have up. plans for the weekend. I'm going to see uh, John Prine oh my on Saturday in LaGrange, Georgia. Awesome. And we, were ta- we talked before this started about doing a music podcast. There's an article uh, on National Review that's uh, almost, it's like 15 years old now, but it's called Rocking the Right, uh, and it talks about the top... It ranks the top 50 conservative rock songs, uh, as liberals have typically had a monopoly on rock and roll. John Prine has one of my very favorite uh, protest songs, um, and he's got a few of them in his first album. Obviously, Sam Stone is one of the more popular ones um, about a Vietnam veteran. He's also got one called Your Flag Decal Won't Get You Into Heaven Anymore, which I think is one of the better, there's a lot of great Vietnam War protest songs. I think that was when people really perfected the craft of the protest song. I think that they are philosophically uh, banal, but I think that there's a lot of 
there's a lot of good stuff in there. When you get into the 70s, you get in the 80s, you get some crap like, you know, Born in the USA songs that <laughs> you don't even really know they're protest songs, but, uh, you know, CCR. Oh, has we some should good do ones. an entire podcast on Imagine by John Lennon. Yeah, that's probably my least favorite song. song ever? Yeah, I decided, you asked me this a couple days ago, and I decided that John Lennon is my favorite Beatle. I think his solo career is totally insufferable. Um, I, I like his very first album with Yoko Ono, and I think most people probably don't like that one as much as Imagine. I think it's so much better, despite its production value being not great. Um, but yeah, I used to really love John Lennon, and then I then I kind of realized that he's he was kind of a, not a great. He was not a great. He was not a great prey. He was not a good husband or father until he quit music in 1975. And he, I appreciate his effort to make amends, and I think that's one of his saving graces. But yes, he spent about a decade Mm -hmm. and a half being an absolute scumbag to women, uh, and his son Julian, um, who obviously Paul McCartney wrote "Hey Jude" about. That must have been an awkward recording session. Yeah. What's this song Maybe about? Maybe you didn't tell him. It's, uh, it's about this guy. <laughs> this guy I know. Yeah, he has a Liverpool. son. Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> used to play in a band with him. Yeah. Still do. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll probably be coming up. I hope it comes up soon. Um, but anyway, I think that will be the end of this podcast. Uh, we thank you for listening. Uh, once again, today is Friday the 5th. On Wednesday the 10th, we will be at the Hilton Garden Inn uh, talking about school choice policy with Kyle Winfield and uh, Professor Jeffrey Dorfman. Um, So we hope that we'll have some people come out for that. Um, I'm going to try to speak in public. uh, So I guarantee you won't want to miss that because it will either be an embarrassing failure or it will be a masterpiece of oration. Um, But until then, we will try to keep our podcast schedule going more consistently, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.